what if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. So, whenever you're ready. No, don't. Don't take the microphone. (laughs) I'm Eric, and the guy reaching for my mic, that's my dad. My name is Gary Anderson. I live in uh, Headingley, Manitoba, just outside of Winnipeg. I used to be in the manufacturing business for ag equipment, and now I'm a retired guy. It's around 9 in the evening on July 1st, 2023. We're in the international section of Toronto's Pearson Airport on our way to Copenhagen, and from there on to Oslo, then Narvik. Originally, this was a trip we had lined up for August of 2020, and you know what happened in 2020. And at that time, it was the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II. And I thought it would be a good time for a father-son trip to learn more about what my dad, your grandfather, went through during World War II and and some of the other things in his life that he encountered. My dad and I are heading to Norway in search of answers about my grandpa, dad's dad, Andrew Anderson, a man whose life was full of secrets because my grandfather was a Second World War spy. I'm Eric Anderson, and this is Storylines. To mark Remembrance Day and the, well, 77th anniversary of the Second World War, I want to share my grandfather's story, and my dad's, and I guess mine too. I also want to figure out exactly what that story is. I never really had a chance to get to know my grandpa, I was five when he died in 1987 after his fourth heart attack. Here's what I do remember. He was a short, stocky man with a great laugh and a major sweet tooth. I have never seen anyone but my grandpa pour sugar on a raw tomato. I remember visiting him and my grandma in Chaplin, a small town in Saskatchewan along the Trans-Canada Highway. That's where my dad grew up. There are pictures of me sitting next to grandpa on the couch watching TV. Me, tiny with lots of red hair, him with a big smile. Neither of our feet quite meet the ground. But beyond that, I have to ask my dad. What was Grandpa like as a person? Oh, he was a fun guy. He uh, had a very good sense of humor. He laughed a lot. You know, he would uh, wrestle you and tickle you and whatever as a kid. Uh, So he's active um, as my baseball coach and hockey coach. He led uh, our Cubs and... uh, took us camping and all kinds of things. So he's a very active guy when uh, we were still young. Yeah. At least that's the side of my grandpa that my dad likes to talk about. My grandfather was complicated. Mostly what I know about him comes from stories my dad has told me about grandpa's life in Norway, fighting the Nazis as a member of the Norwegian resistance during World War II. It made him sound a bit like James Bond. He had been up to see the, the Laplanders, as he called them the Sami people in the north of Norway. And he also said 
that he was in Narvik taking pictures of U-boat installations. Yeah, it's just glimpses of memories. But our family has never had a truly accurate picture of what Grandpa's time in the war was like. It's this huge part of his life, with sections just missing, that we know he carried with him years after the war. None of us knew. Yeah. Not, none of us knew very much about mental illness either. Um, and there was no fixing it, right? Now, as we leave for Norway, my dad and I are looking to fill in the blanks. I'd like to learn a little bit more about the resistance movement during World War II under Nazi occupation. We don't know a lot about what my dad did during the war because he never told Grandma anything until he was arrested. Uh, we certainly want to go up to Narvik where he did a, a very uh, important uh, trip in 1942 at a time when Hitler believed uh, the Allies were going to start moving into Norway and working their way down from there. And he had 400,000 troops in a country of maybe 4 million people at the time. So there was wall-to-wall -wall Germans everywhere. And um, I'd like to learn more about how, how things transpired and see if we can sort of retrace what he did. We arrive in Oslo late Sunday afternoon. Our hotel is a 10 minute walk from the harbor. There's a boardwalk along the Oslo Fjord lined with chic restaurants and angular new housing developments. It's hard to imagine, but from this calm waterfront, Norwegians witnessed the German invasion of their country. Norwegian defenses prevented German battleships from entering the port, but their troops landed further south and Nazis were soon converging on the town. It's a meaningful place for our family, for more than one reason. My grandpa was born in Norway in 1912, but was adopted and immigrated to Saskatchewan. But his heart remained in his birthplace. So in his 20s, with a wife and two young children, my dad's older siblings, he moved back to Oslo in 1937. It was terrible timing. The Nazis invaded just three years later. By 1940, the country was occupied, but not defeated. With whispers, the Norwegian resistance movement rose up in the back streets and kitchens of Oslo. It's a movement that we know my grandpa was a part of, though we don't know much more than that. He never gave us a straight answer about how he got involved. Our best guess is one of grandpa's friends or colleagues recruited him. What is more frustrating was all the multiple stories that we heard at home, and if, if you asked each of my siblings, they'd have a somewhat variant story to what I understood, uh, and to what mom told me, and, and to what dad told me, which all makes sense if he really didn't want the truth to be known. Now, we get the first hint of an answer. Before the trip, I'd reached out to Norway's Resistance Museum in Oslo, providing them with my grandpa's full name, Andrew Svere Andersen and asking for any information they could give us about him. The day we arrive in Norway, I hear back from Sigurd Stenwig, an advisor at the museum. He writes, Attached, you will find the prison register card for Andrew Svere Andersen from Molagarta 19. The Norway Resistance Museum is a 17th century fortress on a hill overlooking Oslo Harbour. Unfortunately, Sigurd won't go on tape. He says he's too shy, but he's happy to give us a private tour. The 
He explains to us that the Norwegian resistance movement was made up of many different groups and that the documents he found show that my grandpa was arrested because the Germans suspected him of having communist connections. And thank you for finding those. Like, that's amazing. The communists didn't get very involved until the Germans attacked the Soviet Union in 1941. Then all hell broke loose. The communists advocated active resistance, sabotaging rail lines, shipyards and factories needed for the German war effort. Their detonation of a bomb at an Oslo rail station is considered the first act of resistance against the German occupation in Norway. Uh, so he was arrested, it said 0010, which just after midnight on September 25th. We now even know the exact time my grandpa was arrested. 10 past midnight, September 25th, 1944. I can picture the scene, my grandpa being dragged from his bed in the dead of night to be taken in for interrogation. After we say goodbye to Sig, Dad and I take a moment to stand outside of the museum and look out over the fjord. My dad lived through the Cold War, when communism was a dirty word, so I wonder how he's going to react to that revelation. Uh, well, I was sickened at first. <laughs> uh, Sig said that... Uh a lot of the, the resistance, communist resistance fighters were not communist, but it was a way to participate uh, in resisting the Nazis. Many people who wanted to resist the German occupation were involved with the communist resistance, regardless of their political affiliations. But they were all labeled and arrested as communists by the Nazis. So it doesn't necessarily mean that Grandpa was a communist, but he was just part of that. He might have been part of that resistance. Yeah, and, and, and for sure he would not have uttered that word back in North America after the war. And uh, I don't think he would have ever <laughs> said anything to mom about it either, yeah. uh, or us kids. It sounds like, from what we learned today, that the communist resistance here in, in Norway, they were very aggressive and very uh, proactive. Um, does that sort of fit with who Grandpa was because I, I I didn't know him that well, but would that fit? No, no, he was not an aggressive person. He was kind and gentle. Yeah. It's the first new information we have about my grandpa. We hope to uncover more as we head north. We need to take a quick break. Storylines will be right back. I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretab. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretab. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Narvik is about a two-hour flight from Oslo. We're glued to the window as we fly over spectacular fjords and mountain ranges. Back in Grandpa's day, this trip would have taken him a day's train ride. The city of 14,000 people was occupied by Germany for all but three months in the war and was of great importance to them. Iron ore mined in Sweden was carried by rail to Narvik, where German boats were waiting in the warm water port to ship it back to Germany for the war effort. Grandpa had told my dad he traveled there in 1942 and took photos of German U-boat installations. 
He said he then placed the roll of film inside a faucet on a train that traveled from Narvik to Sweden. From there, an Allied spy retrieved the film and delivered it to England. Amazingly, Grandpa kept a roll of film from this trip. What appeared to be regular tourist snaps he took while he was there, probably as a cover. Dad has brought these pictures along, hoping they'll help us in our fact-finding. We check into a hotel in Narvik, and almost immediately we have another stroke of luck. My name's Niklas Amble Schirmas. I'm 24 years old from uh, Norway, and I live and work in Narvik, Norway. Nicholas works the front desk at our hotel and has a passion for local history. My dad tells him about our trip and shows him the photos. Old photo, obviously, clearly, uh, of, an, of a building. Uh, it was super overexposed. So everything was super bright and white. Uh, and he asked me if I could make out what the words on the building were because it was in Norway. And so I could make out the second word very easily. It was gestiveri, which is the Norwegian word for guest house. And the first word was a bit more difficult, but uh, it became pretty obvious that it was some sort of Sami, Finnish-ish word. And so I just um, googled the name and the, the name of the place and the guest house, and uh, it showed me it was a place in Finnmark, far, far north in Norway, the furthest northern um, like a municipality. It's a Norwegian town called Skipegura, near what is now the Norwegian-Russian border. This town was full of German soldiers during the war. Grandpa would have been in enormous danger. We are now traveling along the Orphan Railway Line, the building of which is a story in itself. Behind which... We tried to retrace the route he told Dad he used for smuggling out the rolls of film. So we take the train from Narvik to Sweden. Same little piece of track that he was on 80 plus years ago. It's about 40 kilometers sort of inland but it follows the fjord uh, in for the first probably 60 percent of the distance goes the rest of the way this is the same rail that uh, brings iron ore yet to this day from the swedish mines just across the border uh, to the uh, deep water port at narvik the ice-free bay in narvik made it a natural choice for the shipping industry i don't know how it felt for him back then he was probably nervous as hell i would think because he would have had something to, to drop off at the border, I, I suppose, or leave on the train as it goes into Sweden, and then turn around and get back here. As my dad looks out the window watching the Norwegian countryside slip past, I'm thinking about how I'm actually older than my granddad would have been as he crept north. Just just knowing that he's been through here, um, I feel closer to him. Seeing what he was doing and experiencing along the way, uh, you can feel it just by being here, the presence. And then try in your mind to put uh, hundreds of thousands of Nazi troops here as well, uh, as this was a very strategic part of, of Norway. Mm -hmm. It is pretty neat, though, that, like, we're here and, and you know, he probably passed through here 80 years ago, more yeah. than 80 years ago. Yeah, 1942. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was the exact year that Hitler was convinced the Allies were going to come uh, and attack, starting with Norway and work their way down. Mm -hmm. 
We don't know how many missions my grandpa completed as a member of the Norwegian Resistance, but we do know that it didn't last. In September 1944, my grandpa was arrested by the Gestapo. It was the first that anyone in the family, including my grandmother, knew about his involvement in the resistance. Sigurd Stenweg at the Norwegian Resistance Museum in Oslo had told us he'd found Grandpa's prison register card from Morlergata 19. Morlergata 19 was the Gestapo headquarters in Oslo. Sig also mentioned who arrested him. The Gestapo officer that arrested Dad, his name was uh, Gustav Barstorf, and uh, his his name is prominent among investigations related to, to the communist movement. Sigurd told us that communist resistance members were interrogated and beaten. The first 24 hours were the worst. If a resistance member could hold out that long, the odds of them surviving increased. My dad remembers Grandpa telling him about that, about how he didn't crack under interrogation, how he was even placed in front of a firing squad, but instead of giving up information, he fainted. The records show that on January 10th, 1945, my grandpa was transferred to the Greeny prison camp. Greeny was the largest prison camp in Norway during the war. It was not a concentration camp, but conditions were notoriously inhumane. Prisoners endured long days of labor, building barracks within the camp and harvesting crops in nearby fields with little food and crowded conditions. Greeny prison camp is a 20 minute cab ride west of Oslo, tucked away amongst beautiful green hills lush farmland and forest. Much of the camp was torn down by prisoners, my grandpa included, after the war. But there's an interpretive centre and museum on the grounds where the camp used to be. Well, I guess kind of the first thing we say is that it was the largest prison camp in Norway during the Second World War. Bintan Emilia Sintagun works here as an educator. It was established June 14th, 1941 and lasted until 17th of May, 45. And uh, during that time, it was around 20,000 people that was prisoners here. Uh, Amazingly, among those thousands of prisoners, Bintan is able to locate my grandpa's prison records. Uh, it says his name first, Andersson, Andrew Sverre. Yes. And his prison number is uh, 16,820. And he has this star uh, before his name, and that means he was married mm -hmm. before he was prisoned and was arrested um, September 25, 44. It was here from January to deliberation, mm -hmm. uh, May 8, 45. And then it says the arrest reason, it, it's a communist case. Yeah. While she can't say exactly what my grandpa's experience would have been like at the Thank camp, Bintan can paint a general uh, portrait. Well, the prisoners often talked about the food, that they didn't get enough food, they were always hungry. And the food that I got was not nutritious enough. And a lot of the prisoners lost a lot of weight during their time here. Bintan's colleague, Christian Salta, tells us that because Grandpa was in the resistance and was labeled a communist, he would have had a particularly difficult time. So you probably would be treated harder and tougher than other prisoners, probably interrogations, but especially also this uncertainty, this fear, because... One thing was being here, but another thing was being uh, deported to these concentration camps. That was the biggest fear they had, being deported. And you never knew. You never knew. It could have been from one day to the next. You could have been deported. You never knew. And that uncertainty and that fear, especially if you were uh, arrested for 
resistance work. That fear was something you lived with every day. My grandpa spent nearly nine months in that state of fear. At Mullagarta 19, the Gestapo headquarters in Oslo, and at Greeny, before the German capitulation on May 8, 1945. He walked out of Greeny three days after the liberation of Norway. Do we know much about them in terms of like how how they were afterwards, like in terms of like their, maybe their mental health and, and stuff like that. Do we know much about, about that? A lot of people that come here and visit the museum often say that they didn't know anything or the parents didn't tell them or the grandparents didn't tell them. So that's my general experience, that they didn't talk as much about it. For many it was about getting back to the normal life as well not just directly after the war, but in the years after that, in the 50s, uh, getting back to normalcy. And so for many, I think that was important uh, as well. But as I said, yeah, very individual, how they reacted to things. Yeah. There's a reason I'm asking about mental health. After the war, Grandpa and his family returned to Saskatchewan in 1947. My dad was born eight years later. Grandpa got a job working at the salt mine in Chaplin. In small-town Saskatchewan in the 1950s and 60s, mental health supports were few and far between. It's just not something people talked about, in my grandpa's generation, or my father's. But at the end of our trip, for the first time, my dad opens up about it. About what his dad was really like. Not the hockey-coaching, tickle-fighting parent, but who Granddad Andrew was the rest of the time. It was PTSD. It was never mentioned as PTSD. So there was a mental health stigma. You know, you couldn't say dad was like this because of the war, right? So you said nothing. When did you start to see signs that maybe grandpa's mental health was starting to, to struggle a bit? Well, I mean, I didn't see it that closely until the summer of 1970. I remember I was in the pool hall and a couple of guys, three, four years older than me, come up to me and they said, uh, you know, kind of a smart-ass way, uh, you know, what's wrong with Andy? He's driving around and he's crawling around taking pictures and, uh, you know, what's he up to? I had a really sick feeling in my gut uh, when they said that. Um, but nothing was said. I didn't say anything at home. We don't know why my grandpa was taking photos, but we can guess that he was probably reliving his reconnaissance missions. A few months later, things got worse. I came home one afternoon and mom took me straight to the garage, which is where she would have privacy to talk to you. And then she just said, like, dad's accusing me of all kinds of things. He's irrational, he's mad as hell. And gave me a heads up that uh, things weren't good. And then that evening, all hell broke loose. His eyes were glassy. Uh, he just looked like he was in a rage. Uh, he just stared at me and I walked past him, went into the kitchen and mom whispered to me, uh, get to the bedroom and make sure he doesn't get the guns. So we had a shotgun and a 22. Uh, I went into the bedroom pulled the, the dresser in front of the door and then I the guns were in the closet uh, I disassembled the shotgun and then took the uh, it's not a clip on the 22 it's a I don't even know what you call it anymore like a tube underneath the, the barrel 
took that and put it in a different spot. And, uh, and then just listened to the barrage of yelling going on in the kitchen. Uh, unfortunately, most of it was in Norwegian, so I have no idea what he was saying. And around midnight or so, it settled down, which seemed like forever. He didn't touch her like he didn't hit her, but he was accusing her of, of things. He was very, very paranoid. And then uh, the RCMP came around the next day, and uh, they took him away. The RCMP took Grandpa to the University of Saskatchewan's psychiatric ward, where he stayed for six weeks. But uh, eventually he came home, and, uh, you know, it's that initial shock, right? He was so stoned. He was, for whoever's seen uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, you know, Jack Nicholson. That's, God, I, I just about left the theater when I saw that movie. Uh, I still get, I got goosebumps right now thinking about it. It was, it's just, you know, it's not your father. And uh, for a long time, I wished he had died. I just felt so bad. Did you ever like process this or are you still processing it or do you like did you talk to anyone about it? No, I didn't tell anyone. That night in the room uh, I was scared to tears and then caught myself and I had a talk with myself and saying I gotta toughen up, I can't cry. And uh, when dad died in February 23rd of 87, 17 years later, I didn't shed a tear. It was very hard for me to let go. Yeah, uh, I, I couldn't cry for him. It's buried down deep. You just leave it down down deep. And uh, uh, you don't, you don't want to go down too far down there. And I got a little bit emotional here a few minutes ago. Uh, that's unusual for me, as you know. Yeah, but um, it's there. My grandpa buried those feelings deep down. And for the longest time, my dad did too. But I think now that's starting to change. This trip to Norway has got things started. What do you think your dad would think of you right now? Oh, I think he'd have a pretty big smile on his face. <laughs> and he'd be very proud of you. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, he would. He would uh, because without your journalistic instincts and curiosity, uh, this wouldn't be happening. And this is just the beginning. We'll be having a lot more conversations like this one in the days and years to come. That's all for Storylines this week. Today's documentary was reported by me and produced and edited by Allison Cook and A.C. Rowe, who is also the producer of Storylines. The show is part of the CBC Audio Doc Unit. I want to thank CBC Saskatchewan's Shauna Powers and Corrine Larson for their help in making this documentary possible, and my new Norwegian friends, 
for doing so much research on my grandpa. If you like the show and care about Canadian documentaries, the best way to show it is to leave us five stars and a glowing review. Better still, tell a friend about us. I'm Eric Anderson. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.